Welcome to Heritage Fellowship's Sermon of the Week. We hope you're encouraged and challenged as we study the Word of God together. So we are in our series, The Life and Teaching of Jesus. And as you remember, we've divided this up the way Matthew divided up his gospel. He presents a, uh, a series of passages or chapters, if you would, going through just uh, narrative portions of Jesus' life, his, his comings and goings, if you would. And then we have seasons and, and sections of Jesus' teaching. And today we are finishing up the narrative section that we find in chapter 11 and 12. We started that back in August, if you're keeping track, if you're trying to fill in your notes. That's where we were. And that means next week, most likely, we will jump into chapter 13, into a teaching section, and uh, we're going to get parabolic. We're going to graph and do curves. That's for you, Daniel. We're going to have some curves. Now, we're going to get into Jesus' teaching in parables. But that's next week. For today, we are going to review all of chapter 11 and 12. Not really. We're going to do that super briefly. There are many different ways that chapters 11 and 12, like most of Matthew, uh, the uh, learned men and women uh, who are, are more scholarly than I, have divided up the gospel in many different ways. By way of review, I like the way that David Platt in his uh, commentary, Exalting Jesus and Matthew, divided these up. He's, he kind of had this main idea. He said, when we see Jesus for who he is, we can either repent and receive his mercy, or we can reject him and experience eternal judgment. But this idea through these last couple of chapters of really getting a sense of who, who Jesus is. So if you'll pull up uh, two slides from now, that one just says it was me here, so you figure that out. Um, Matthew 11, he paints these, he sees Matthew as painting four portraits of Jesus as the promised Messiah, the authoritative judge, the sovereign son, a gracious master. And then in chapter 12, six more, he sees Jesus as Lord of the Sabbath, the servant of God and of sinners. He sees Jesus as the power of God, as a greater prophet, as a wise king. And then today, we're going to talk about Jesus as our elder brother. And so this is just super broad overview of where we've been over the last couple of chapters, just to reorient ourselves as we're coming out of chapter 12, beginning chapter 13 next week. So this is where we find ourselves. Your Bible may have a, a title such as Jesus' Mother and Brothers, the NIV changed relationships. I like the KJV here, his mother and brethren. I don't know, wearing my coat, saying brethren, I feel extra preachy today. So that's good. Brethren, cistern and brethren. Well, that's good. And the passion says Jesus' true family. I would title this week family identity. So there you go. We have a title early. Let's read together. I'm reading from the NIV, Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 50, our text for the day. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. I mean, as an aside, I would not want to be that guy, right? You know, somebody comes like Jesus, mother and brothers, Jesus is teaching and that's tough. And I'm glad I'm not that guy. He replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. 
For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Family. Family identity. This is one of those things. There's actually a great list of things that pastors aren't supposed to talk about. Uh, you know, politics, money, family. But, you know, I'm not a real pastor. I just play one on Sunday. So we're going to talk about family today. I didn't get that list. It was in a memo I forgot to read. It was one of those emails or a text that I forgot to get to. But family can be a very touchy subject. I think uh, maybe the best way to say it is few things hit home like family. <laughs> Glad you're here. Thank you. I'll be here all morning. Um, it can be tough. And, you know, if you get a group of uh, one peoples together, they want to agree on what family is, how to define it, who's in it, who's out, how they got there. When you get a group this size, the experiences are so varied. You throw in the thousands of people joining us online from around the world today. I made that up. And it can be very difficult and a, a subject that we skim over, right? Because we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to think about it. We are like, most of us are like, dude, that was Christmas. That's 12 months away. I don't want to think about family again. But good for us. We have committed to every single verse of Matthew. And these are ones we're going through together. And I believe that there's truth and freedom found for all of us as we open our hearts to do this together. I'll start with a story from medical school. The end of four years, we had what's called our capstone course. This was supposed to be the thing that tied it all together. And um, it was actually a very good month. And uh, one of the sessions we had was with a, with a lawyer. And... Um, if you're a lawyer, I still love you, that's fine. You know what they say, it's just 90% of lawyers give the rest a bad name, so that's, no, I'm, I'm just, some of you are doing that math, like, oh, wait a second, no. Um, you know, Jesus was a friend of sinners, so I'm, okay, listen, I should stop. Are there any lawyers in the room, like, okay, that's kind of awkward, actually, at that moment, there aren't any, and so that's cool. I'm just going to keep moving. So this lawyer, um, it's a little sketchy to start with because she was there to try to make sure we, you know, we, we never got sued, which is a little concerning. She wasn't there to make sure we never did anything wrong. She was just made sure we never got into trouble. And, 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 but she came with this idea. She said, I was in the hospital with her mom in the emergency room. She said, I noticed all of the beds had wheels on them. And I feel like that was dangerous because why don't they just get rid of the wheels and then they can't accidentally roll? In that moment, everyone in the room who'd ever actually worked in the ER has this vision of someone needing emergency uh, surgery on a bed with no wheels and like 12 people going. <laughs> so I'm a little concerned about what this lady says, but she offers some important advice to us. She said, the best thing you can do when it comes to family is absolutely never treat your family. That's number one. And number two, you should treat everybody like they were your family. I just thought this is great. From her perspective, if her goal is to make sure that, that none of these burgeoning doctors ever get into trouble and never do anything wrong, it's awesome, right? We treat everybody like family, and we never treat our family. We're all about to starve to death, but we're never getting into trouble. So how you define family becomes very important. And the goals that you have with a defining family are very important. Because if your goal is to never get hurt. Then you will define family in a way that protects you. 
And I'll just say this, if your goal in this life is to never get hurt, to never experience pain, then I would encourage you to reconsider whether you want to be a follower of Jesus. Man, what an opening, Pastor. I can't wait to see where we go from there. I'm just telling you that there is is no way to experience family the way it is intended without having moments and periods of time that are difficult and painful and costly. When we think about family, we often bring our own personal background and experiences, our cultural norms, and for some of us, our desire to protect ourselves. For some of us, our desire to protect other people. For some of us, our desire to do the opposite, to drag other people into a mess and to expose other people. And we come at this topic with so many backgrounds and goals and motives My desire today is quite simple. I just want to be a follower. I want to hear and to obey. And when Jesus says something that makes me uncomfortable, to realize that it's me that needs to change and not him. Perhaps this commentary sums up our introduction quite well. Because as a teacher, I have to acknowledge that it's easier said than done at times to say, well, We'll just do it Jesus' way and not my way. I understand that defining that can be complicated, but it starts with a commitment to do it. For the commentary. Today's text provides an opportunity for preachers to wade into the swirling waters of contemporary family life. This is a topic that some preachers fear, and with good reason. Family is a complicated subject. In our culture, the notion of family is sentimentalized in various ways. Dim memories of 50 sitcoms, lavish weddings, extravagant baby showers, stereotypes of what constitutes normative family life. And our sentimental ideas about family set people up with unrealistic notions of what it takes to make a life together. These images especially pervade church context. And it can be difficult in some pulpits to admit the decidedly unsentimental truth that families are messy configurations that can disappoint and hurt as well as give us joy. And so I just want to be honest this morning with all of us that family can be a massive construct full of pain and problems, but can also be an avenue of great joy. And the problems with families, they're made up with people, and people aren't perfect. I'm not, and you're not. And family is often a place where we find ourselves, though not perfect, being perfected. So I want to set a few ground rules as we start. Number one, we must take a complete and holistic view of Scripture and Jesus' teaching. That goes for this morning as well as like every morning, as far as that goes. Because we see in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus talks about the expected conflict within family. We'll find later in chapter 15, Jesus talks about our responsibility to our family and explicitly denounces people who refuse to support and honor their parents. You know, many people look at this passage, this context for today, and goes, wow, that seems a little anti-family. Like, Jesus, what are you saying? Family doesn't matter? How do we define it? And and then, but yet later, we see Jesus coming back around and supporting a more typical view of family. And so, it's important that we don't just look at one passage and decide that that has the be-all and end-all biblical meaning of family. 
But this is the passage that we're going to look at today, and we can't just read over it because we're not comfortable. Number two, there's no way that in two or three hours this morning that I'm going to be able to give a full and complete dissertation of a biblical view of family. There's not time to do that. Number three, a very large measure of humility and grace will be required, both interpersonally. As you are hearing this this morning, I I pray for his grace and humility just to saturate all of us. We need that grace and humility interpersonally. We need it with one another. Practically, I need it for me, (laughs) from you guys. And finally, yes, as I said, we are not perfect, but we are being perfected. But we are committed to Jesus over self, kingdom over culture, and truth over perception. So let's start with this. This might be shocking. It might be disturbing to some of us and to some of the theology that we bring into the morning. But Jesus' biologic family was not perfect. Jesus was perfect. His biological family was not perfect. Jesus had a family of origin that had issues. We saw Jesus in chapter 10 predict this inevitable conflict conflict that will arise in families. And his biological family was no exception. So he's told, he's, he's teaching to his disciples. There's a crowd around and he's told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. So from this, we can, we can come up with several observations. Number one, his father was not listed, and many would say that's because Joseph, his stepdad technically, had passed away. So he wasn't there. And his mom and his stepbrothers were outside. Do you ever wonder why they were outside? It would be not too much of a stretch to go that they were outside because they were not yet counted as a close follower. When you read in other Gospels, uh, they, were, they were outside wanting to speak to Jesus to say, hey, hey, buddy, calm it down a little bit. You're getting yourself into trouble here. They were not just geographically outside at this moment, but many would say that they were outside of the disciples, the, the followers at this moment. That it was, um, they hadn't just made that decision yet. They'd grown up with Jesus. They're still trying to figure out their own relationship to him. So I, I would see two points in this context. One, Jesus gets it, right? Some of us would say, I mean, Jesus, I mean, he had the perfect family. And, and how, how, would, how, how is he going to understand what it's like to be me? I just need to say to you, Jesus gets you. And to think that you're experiencing anything in your family or without that's beyond the grasp and understanding of Jesus is just a bit presumptuous on your part. I mean, I love you, but don't be so full of yourself to think Jesus doesn't understand you. I may not get it. Like, I may not fully understand what it's like to be you. And you may not understand fully what it's like to be me. But we, we have a Savior who fully understands. He came fully God and fully man. And as man, he has experienced life, its trials and its temptations and its struggles and its difficulties and its hardship, and what it means to live life in a family. He's experienced that as well. 
So Jesus gets you. Hebrews 4, 15 says this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus does not just get you conceptually, he gets you experientially. And this law that says no one gets you is intended to isolate you from your very creator. And number two, give it time. Man, give it a little time. If you have a family member who doesn't believe in Jesus right now, give it some time. Time's not up yet. This is not the end of the story for Mary or for Jesus' brothers, is it? This is not the last time we're going to see them. They're not on the outside asking Jesus to come speak to us. They find their, their way into the inside as disciples. Right? We see Mary at the foot of the cross. She may not have fully gotten it in this moment, but she gets it. Acts chapter 1, talking about um, the disciples when they arrived to the upper room. This is Acts 1, 13 and 14. They arrived... And they went to the upper room, and verse 14 says, they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So this group of people who were on the outside looking in find themselves as disciples, as followers in the upper room. See, that wasn't the end of the story. Jude wrote an epistle. James was the leader of the early church in Jerusalem. We we see Jesus' brothers taking an active role in the burgeoning church. But they had their moment of not getting it. They had their outside moment. You have family members with their outside moment. Don't write them off. So let's take some time then to define family. And I want to say this. I want to say, I want to look at the way family should be defined. And what I want to be really careful in my language and my choice of words here is to resist the urge to say redefined. It's easy to go, well, we need to come together as a church and redefine family. No, no, we don't. That's not all what needs to happen. We don't, read it. We don't need to redefine love and friendship, and relationship, and community. We don't need to redefine anything. But see, God created this world, and he defined everything. And our job is to line up with the definition that he set into place. And and, and I know it may seem like a distinction without a difference, but it's a very, very important difference. See, the world is constantly trying to redefine everything. And it's up to us not to join into this and go, well, no, we want to redefine it the right way. No, we want to walk in the right way. And so don't allow yourself to buy into this law that somehow we're trying to to redefine something. We're trying to find the definition that was put into place when God created it all. God wrote the definition. He created the concept of family, of love, of marriage, of all of these things that the world is trying to redefine for their own reason. And we do not need to join into that. Well, let us show you our redefinition. We have the definition because we follow the way. And I get it. It gets a little linguistically cumbersome. That's just a fancy way of saying it. It's kind of hard to find the right word. 
Right? So family, biological family, family of origin, the family that raised me, the people on my mom's taxes, uh, you know, church family, Christian family, what gospel family? Like what, what word do we put to that? And, and I get that that can be difficult. And, and, and I would like for us to be able to work this out together as we begin to apply these truths. But Jesus' words here are important for all of us. Right? I know we come at this, for some of us, like, family, this is great. This is what have such a wonderful experience of family. You just, you have all the feels. Oh, this is good. And for some of us, it's the exact opposite. It's like you're trying to figure out how to spell family with four letters. I mean, it's just tough for you. And you're bringing, and I just need to say the truth that Jesus brings is for all of us. And we can't somehow write off our need for truth because we think we've experienced something that's good enough. Man, good enough is never good enough. We need God enough. And whether it's been hard for you or easy for you, or for most of us somewhere in the middle, and it depends on whose birthday was last, like that's fine. We do not serve a Savior who does not understand. So Jesus' words here are important for all of us, for those whose biologic family is great, and for those whose biological family is less great, you know? Essentially, Jesus is looking. So this is what's happening, right? So they come in, they say, your mom and your brothers want to talk to you. And Jesus basically is looking at the woman who gave birth to him and to the men that he grew up from childhood with and says, well, no, my true family is whoever does the will of my father in heaven and my brothers and sisters and mothers. There were probably not a lot of people left to be offended at Jesus, but if there were a few holdouts, that would have done it. Because that cultural understanding of family, that just, that just blew it the rest of the way up. As a matter of fact, some people who weren't offended at Jesus, who were on board with everything else, are scratching their heads going, um, come back with that, Jesus? Again, let me read from this commentary. With this bold statement, Jesus is not breaking family ties, but he is loosening them. He is not dissolving the natural family bonds, but he is showing the strength of the supernatural family bond. And what is beautiful is that Jesus puts no spiritual value in blood relations or religious heritage. Do you notice that? He does not care if your father was the high priest or the grand poobah. That's in a commentary. I didn't make that up. I like it because it says Grand Poobah. But it goes on to say this. The kingdom of God is not open to the who's who, but to verse 50, whoever. Isn't that a refreshing word for a tax collector like Matthew? Whoever, Jew or Gentile or man or woman or slave or free or saint or sinner, whoever. I mean, we, we blow past that, right? But part of the point of what Jesus is saying is Whoever. Man, isn't it good to be a whoever? It's really good to be a whoever. Whoever what? Whoever shows up to the mountain every Thursday morning. Whoever got to eat those fish. Whoever can quote the Torah. I know. How about this one? Does he say it, it's open at this moment to whoever believes? No? 
Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven. Whoever does. Two really important words. You can be a whoever, but you have to do. Whoever does. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven. That's who's in the church and the family and fellowship with the Father. That's who Jesus calls his brothers and sisters. Whoever does God's will. And listen, this is the moment that I stand here on the stage to again say that changing what you do will never change who you are. But when there's a change in who you are, there's a resultant change in what you do. So being a whoever does will not get you very far. It will get you very tired and frustrated and worn out. That's about as far as it's going to get you. But being a whoever is will absolutely result in becoming a whoever does. So I'm not trying to get, remember I said this earlier, we have to look at the Bible in its full context. We're not getting rid of when Paul says we are justified through faith and not of works, lest no one should boast. It doesn't go backwards. You can't have works and find yourself justified by faith. But if you are justified by faith, there will be a do. And so often we say, okay, well, let's break this down. Casey, can you describe for the Christian what just what faith alone looks like? And I would just say, no, I cannot, because faith is never faith alone. It might be fun to write about and talk about, but when it comes to living, we are justified through faith and faith alone, 100%. But we do not just live in a justified place of, of faith. There's a doing that absolutely has to come out of that. And if there is no doing in your life, then it is the opportunity to go back and say, from what place am I being? And I'm not talking about a legalistic works mentality but I am saying that at the pearly gates is no time to find out that there was never this change in who you are. And so this is not for judging others. This is a Holy Spirit reflective moment to look at your own heart and life. I'm not telling you what the doing has to look like. I'm just saying if there's no doing, you need to look hard to see is there a being. And we're not getting rid of Paul's doctrine of justification through faith. I'm simply saying what Jesus said, whoever does is my brother and sister. There's a reason he doesn't say whoever believes. Because true belief will have a resultant action, or it's not a true belief. And all of a sudden, like, can we please go back and talk about family? It's less complicated. See, what we see here is not Jesus closing the door to his mom and to his brothers, rather he's opening the door to you and to me. Jesus is not lessening their value or importance, rather he is extending value and importance to you and to me. Jesus is saying that our identity is not based on where or when we were born or with whom we were raised. Our identity is based on our obedience to God the Father. And, and, I, and I know that that family is so important, is so important to me. But we just have to understand that Jesus is saying to, to, toward his own mom and his own brothers that there's a relationship higher than that. And we have this, this thing, blood is thicker than water, right? I would just say to you that the blood of Jesus is the thickest of all. And that, that we have to be willing to receive the truth that is coming 
through Jesus' own words, regardless of whether we feel like we've had too much pain from our family to bring that word up to this current context, or we've had too much awesomeness with our family to somehow devalue it down to this place. But, but what Jesus is defining here is a defining moment, and it's up to us to reorganize our life toward that in a way that honors the greater context of all of his teaching, which is why we're not going to be able to fully satisfy all of that before this afternoon. But there are some significant implications to this truth. A truth that says that our greatest identity as family comes in our obedience to Father, which should make sense because that's our greatest identity in general. I first must be a son. And I don't know, 50, 60% of you first must be a daughter. We could count and see. So I know it's going to take some time to work that out. And we're going to talk a little bit more as we go. But based on Jesus' definition and view of family, let's look at it this way. If I am doing the will of the Father, right, then I'm Jesus' brother. And if you're doing the will of Father, then you're Jesus' brother. And you're Jesus' sister, which makes us brothers. It makes you my sister. And it defines the relationship between all of us at a very high level as brothers and sisters to one another and to Jesus. And there's some really obvious implications to that, isn't there? I mean, think about it for a moment. If those in this room who follow Christ are your brothers and your sisters, does that change the way you treat them? So let's think about a few ways that could happen. First of all, in the cultural context that Matthew is recording this teaching of Jesus, we see oftentimes a decision to follow Jesus meant the loss of everything. Family was everything. Family of origin was everything in that culture. And they lost their place to eat and worship and gather and have relationship. In the moment of identifying with Christ, it was all gone. And Jesus is saying, you have not lost it all when you've gained it all. And your brothers and sisters in Christ have an opportunity to be your brothers and sisters. And that was a very real need. And, and we don't think about it in our current culture. Some of us do. Some of us have an experience that choosing Jesus meant losing family. There are those in this room that a choice to follow Jesus in this way cost them something with their family. In a way that many of us would not understand, but would do well to have conversations with those people to understand what it cost at times to follow Jesus. And so to say to those people that we are your brothers and your sisters is not some nice platitude that we say on Sunday as we go about our business, but is a reality of life in Christ. And let me just say this. I would surmise by looking at the world 
that we will have a progressively increasing opportunity to understand this for ourselves and our children will as we continue in this world. And second of all, let me just say this. The nuclear family as you understand it is a relatively Western and modern concept. This idea that sitting on your pew should be a mom and a dad, two and a half kids and a dog and a Volvo on one pew, and that's family. That construct of family, that's well more American than it is biblical. And for some of you, that's a great sigh of relief because you are striving for something that really isn't your goal. For some of you, you're like, dang, I've been working awful hard for that half-kid dog in Volvo, and we don't even have fuse. Let me just release you from a pressure that should not be there. It's our culture redefining something. Where does that come from? I believe that it takes two American values of independence and privacy and begins to force that on the family and says, the people in your house should be self-sufficient. You don't need anybody else, and nobody knows what happens in here. What dangerous life we live when we live isolated in this little bitty home and try to define that as family. And listen, I live with some great people. We have two kids and two dogs. They live outside, and I'm waiting for the truck, not the Volvo. They're wonderful, but family is so much more than this beautiful thing that I experience. And so I just need you to know that we are committed to defining family in a way that is true to kingdom and not culture. Let me read this. Actually, I think I wrote this. There's no quotes. (laughs) I am blessed beyond measure that my parents come to church here. Actually, they're online right now. At least they're supposed to be. We'll know in a minute. (laughs) Well, anyway, they're at home, but I'm blessed that they come to church here. I love doing life with my brothers and sisters-in-law. I I certainly don't want to devalue decades of doing life together, but the thing that connects us, all of us, the thing that connects us most closely is not a last name, but the name of Jesus. The thing that connects all of us is not a last name, but the name of Jesus. Third implication of this kind of closeness and definition of family. You know, we would be offended at the idea of letting a child of ours go homeless or hungry. We would would be bothered if our brother or sister had a need that we could meet and we, we just didn't do it. We would be bothered to see someone in our family go, wait, you know, My brother Daryl's got 10 vehicles. My other brother Daryl needs to borrow one. Like, come on, dude. What are you doing? What what would we say to someone who was letting a a child of theirs go homeless or hungry? What would you say to them? Would you ever let that happen in your house? Would I ever not feed Elizabeth? She's tough to feed. Let's just be honest. Man, sometimes you just got to have Cheez-Its, right? But would I ever do that? No. 
Casey, you wouldn't treat your family that way. We would not tolerate treating our family that way. We would not let our family treat each other that way. Family just doesn't do that. They don't, huh? They don't, do they? Or do we? If everyone in this room is your brother or your sister, if there, are, if there are, are homeless and hungry children in this community and we don't make sure they have a home or something to eat, how are we treating our family? And listen, this is not some sort of redistribution of wealth. Everybody's got to have the same vehicle. Listen, that's not the way it works in anybody's family. But nobody should go hungry. And when Jesus says, look around the room, these are your brothers and sisters, there is a very expressed implication of that. It means something. And it means something about the way we should be doing. We should be doing life as family. Because you can believe that the people in this room and in this community and around the world that obey the Father, you can believe their family But if that believing doesn't lead to doing, then I would question your believing. And listen, I know for some of us, you're like, yeah, and the rest of you are like, well, but I don't know, it's complicated. Listen, cool, you got a home group to sort that out. All I'm saying to you is at some point, if you have more excuses than action, I would question your belief. I love you. I'm doing this in my own life. I look around. I look at my life and I go, am I treating other people like brothers and sisters? And that doesn't mean that all of you show up at my house on Christmas morning. It's not what it means. Get this context and cultural implications out of your mind and let's commit ourselves to a kingdom understanding of what it means to be a brother and a sister. But you know what? If you try to figure it all out before you accept it as truth, you're kind of going to change the truth. Because if, if, if believing that this is the way families designed means that sometimes I've got to do something uncomfortable for someone else. You don't know. We need to define the someone else. Because I might be willing to do it for Brian, but I'm not doing it for Ben. But if they're both my brother, then I really have to ask myself, why did I pick one over the other? And it doesn't mean that we have to do everything for everybody and be everything for everybody. Oh my goodness. We've got so many excuses and reasons why this will never work that we're unwilling to believe it enough to try it. No, you're not supposed to be everything for everybody. But there are people in your life that being a brother in Christ means something. And it's going to cost you something. Your time and your money and your comfort. And you might have to loan them a truck. And I might have to get a 1500 instead of a 2500 And I can use that extra 1000 to help a brother out. You know what? That's okay. I'm not even telling you not to buy the 2500 I am telling you that if you are completely unaware of anybody else's needs in your world, then you're not living as a brother and sister in Christ. And that's bad. I shouldn't do that face. Take that away. The more we see fellow Christ followers in this room and around the world, the more we see one another as Christ followers, as brothers and sisters, it will change the way we think and act and give and serve and pray. And if it doesn't, then we are not really believing the things we say we believe and we're fooling ourselves. And here's the awesome part, though. That's actually, that's not true. Here's another awesome part, because that's amazing. 
When the world looks at Christians and sees a group of people at least as, if not more dysfunctional than they are, to what do we have to show them? Hey, come be, come be a brother in Christ. What, so you can treat me like you? No thanks. I got stuff to do on Sunday morning. I'll keep that 10% of my offering and take my chances at the end of the world because I don't believe you believe what you say you believe. If you believe what you say you believe, then show it in your actions. And I believe this, that as the church, as we, as Christ followers, continue, not start, not begin, continue, because saints, y'all are doing it. I love you because you're doing it. But as we continue to do that, we will ever more show a distinction between us and the world. And the world needs to see Jesus real bad. The world needs to live with Jesus real bad. And the Jesus that they need is here in this room in each and every one of us. And he will show up at your workplace because you took him with you. I'm all for praying for Jesus to show up in the workplace. But that's an easy prayer to answer. Take him with you. Man, we just, we just need Jesus at my school. Awesome. Take him with you. Don't leave him in the backpack in the car. All of a sudden, he's at your school. Man, I'll tell you what. You'd been at my family dinner at Christmas. Jesus should have been there. Yeah, he should have. What'd you do with him? Seriously. That old bumper sticker, Jesus is my co-pilot. Dude, you're in Jesus' chair. But there's an implication, not just for our relationship with one another, but the implication for our relationship with Jesus. Do you know what it means? That Jesus, the Son of God, is your brother? Right? How many think it would be cool, like, if Tim Cook was your brother? You know, hey, hit him up. Hey, you know, I could really use one of those new iPhones, you know, the 16 that you've got in your pocket. We're actually on the 13, for those of you who don't follow along, so that would be cooler than something out here. You know, you're, we, we feel like with family, there's a certain access. Right? Now, not in my family. Man, I, I text certain members of you. You know who you are. Where are you sitting today? Y'all don't text me back. That's cool. I don't text you back either. Speed of returning text does not define family. Praise God. But I will say this, access does. We give access to our brothers and sisters. Our parents, our children have an access to us. Do you know what it means that Jesus, the Son of God, the King of the world, the breath and the life, the way is your brother. You have an access in a relational way that is so real and so connected and so true and so vibrant and so alive and so not what the world would say, this way out there, disenfranchised, disengaged God. He is your brother. Man, that's pretty awesome that we have this family both with but also in Christ. So yes, he's the son of God and the son of man and a high and exalted Messiah and a judge and a master and a Lord and a prophet and a king and all of those portraits that we saw painted over the last two chapters, but he is also our humble and close brother who gets us. Who knows what it's like to be you. 
Because you're not alone. Because you have a brother. Just think about that for a minute. And again, I'm not trying to to take Jesus off his throne. And and it's it's real. He is the the, the king and the judge. And and I would, would dare not tarnish that place. But at the same time, he is our humble brother. Jesus, thank you for that truth. So I don't know, maybe on some level you got to say, listen, just be real. It's going to be hard to have all these brothers and sisters. But it is entirely impossible and disingenuous to say, I have my brother Jesus, but I, I don't claim any of the other brothers. See, what you're trying to do there is say, oh, I, I, I just want it to be easy for me. Having Jesus as a brother sounds good. Having you all as brothers and sisters sounds hard. I think very highly of myself. Good sounds good, hard sounds bad. Let's just take good, thank you very much. And if that's the life that you want, then you should reconsider being a follower of Jesus. Because Jesus says, I am your brother. And it is amazing. But you got all these other people, and it's going to be hard. And guess what? All those other people are saying about you. <laughs> it's not like you're the good brother. Right? It's not like, man, y'all are so lucky to have me as a sister. No, you're somebody else's other brother. That's what you think about that. You're somebody else's other sister, right? Praise God for God, man. That's awesome. All right. Worship team, why don't you guys come back up? Birthplace and biology are incidental. This is a quote from a commentary. I can tell you which one of you care. Birthplace and biology are incidental. The vital thing is to follow Jesus' way and word. Those who shape their lives by his teaching are the people he regards as true family. This is the fullest kind of family likeness and creates the strongest sort of kinship bond. So said plainly is this. This is, this is me. This is not a commentary. It'll be obvious in a moment. Said plainly is this. I love being married to Kara. She's not perfect. Man, she's pretty amazing. I love being the dad of Victoria and Elizabeth. They're less perfect, but still amazing. She's just had longer to be perfected than you have. You're well on your way. So are you, Elizabeth, wherever you are. She's serving in nursery. I know where she's in. <laughs> Dude, don't listen to him. He lost his own kid. No, she's serving a nursery. Along with some of your other brothers and sisters. Serving your little brothers and your little sisters, by the way. That's just a free little aside. You can think about what that means later. I am blessed with and by 
a wonderful biological extended and foster family. But I must not allow them to be my source of identity. Being or not being married, having or not having children, those are not the things that identify me. Those are not the things that qualify me for the family of God. I'm not a part of the family of God because I'm married. I am not a part of the family of God if I, I don't, being unmarried. That, that is not the most important criteria. The criteria is simple. Doing the will of the Father. And, and let me just say this. I think I'm going to say it. Hold on. Before I say it, I think it's coming. Yeah, it is. Let me say this. I can never fully walk in my identity and destiny as a son of God as Jesus' own brother, if I allow anything other than him to mark me at that deepest level. If my primary goal in life is to be a husband, then I'll never be a very good one. If my primary goal in life is to be a father, then I'll never be a very good one. If my primary goal in life is to be a follower of Christ, then we're getting somewhere. And whether or not I become a husband whether or not I become a father, whether or not that father it looks like biological children, adopted children, foster children, kids in Africa, kids in, in East Morristown, whatever that looks like, I will never be able to do that to the fullest extent that I should unless I'm doing it as a follower first. Follower first. See, I'm called as a son of God to be a follower and my identity, comes, my, my identity comes from that place. I'm identified in the family of God as who I am as an obedient son of God. And everything else has to follow out of that. And if you want to define your family based on who you are, you and your family are in trouble. But family is defined by our relationship to God the Father through Jesus. Everything else must flow out of that true identity. It's the, one of the greatest themes here in this passage. Our relationship with Jesus takes priority over everything. So if your experience with family, and some of you this is the case, is so full of hurt and wounds that you have a hard time just listening this morning, I am truly sorry that you have had to experience that kind of pain but let me reassure you that a healthy biological family is not a necessary requirement to enter the kingdom. <clears throat> let me also say is your experience with family is one that is so full of sweet, happy Hallmark memories. You have the all-American family. I just need to say to you that's not sufficient to allow entrance into the kingdom either. Again, from my commentary, as Jesus no doubt perceived in his own time and culture, an idolatrous posture towards the family can lead to the belief that the family is not only necessary but sufficient for faith. The narrow bonds of our nuclear family can become so strong and entrenched that the gospel call to find our true family in the larger body of Christ becomes almost impossible. See, we can so easily place family as an idol, whether that is a source of pain or pride, Listen, we can idolize family. You can have had such a horrific upbringing or current situation that you're allowing that to define who you are. 
You could have also had the most amazing Walton family everything and that you, you allow that to define who you are. And allowing your family, either good or bad, to define who you are is placing that family above Jesus defining who you are. And we just call that idolatry. And I know that seems awkward and weird and some of you don't even like that phrase to say, is family an idol in your life? But it's a really important question that's coming to the table this morning. We can so easily place family as an idol, one that is either a source of pain or a source of pride. Either way our experience has been, we can so easily allow family, as we have previously understood it, to define us, to identify us. But here Jesus is saying that it is not the family that you were born into that identifies you. It's the family of God that should be our source of identity. A family that is only entered by obedience to the will of the Father. I know this hits home. I know some of us are struggling on complete opposite ends of the spectrum. Some of you, family is so hard that you don't even want to talk about it. Some of you are just perfectly content with your biologic nuclear family and you don't like the idea of anybody mucking with it. But I think this morning, the question that, that I have, at least in this moment, is this. Would you stand with me? We're going to take a few moments in worship to provide you the opportunity to simply ask yourself, ask the Holy Spirit to answer this question for you. Is family an idol in your life? Is being a husband or a wife, a mother or a father, a son or a daughter, is that an idol in your life? When push comes to shove, do you long for that to identify you in a way do you, you long for something? Have you allowed something other than Jesus to identify you? So let's just take a moment, enter into his presence and ask that question. And then we'll just see what we need to do from there. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. Please join us online at heritagefellowship.us or in person in Jefferson City, Tennessee, as we encounter God, touch lives and impact nations.